Not much new here in the mountains of western North Carolina. Sammy and I went down yesterday morning to feed the goats and to give Molly the horse uh, some pieces of apple. We're walking back and we hear a siren. It gets closer. A paramedic car heads up our road, drives past us and stops at our neighbor, Tommy's house. Two paramedics get out and go in. Then we hear more sirens. The fire chief drives up in his car. Then an ambulance is right behind him. We've moved up the road a bit, and I look through some trees and see them walk in with a stretcher. Sammy is staring, transfixed, full of curiosity. She wants to walk back down and see exactly what's going on. Sam, we can't go down and stare like a couple of ghouls. Let's head home. She doesn't respond. Her curiosity has been piqued. Come on, Sam, let's go. She finally comes. Today, I've had three conversations with other people about what happened, and I couldn't give any insights to anyone because we walked away. This is Ernie Johnson, owner of Anashira. I'm happy to be a part of this company because on these dreary, overcast, cold, drizzly winter days, when it isn't inviting to go outside, I can always make a batch of deep forest soap. It's available now. I invite you to go to anashira.com and buy a few bars. If you have guests at your house and you like them, put a bar in your guest bathroom. If you don't like those guests and wish they'd just leave, do not put a bar in there. Take advantage of our discount for loyal listeners, Spring Stories 15. That's Spring Stories 1-5. Let's go back to Oberhausen, and I'll share some of my adventures in this new episode of Stories from Anashira. So we all head back to Germany from our three weeks on the Italian Riviera. About a third of the kids were heading back to their university studies, maybe a third to studies at the gymnasium, and the rest to trade schools or the military or maybe to a job. Kids in Germany at that time were divided at about nine or ten into one of three educational paths. About a third went to the Realschule. This would last about six years, and the great majority would not attend a university. Many would attend a Berufsschule, or vocational school. They attend this in conjunction with serving an apprenticeship to learn a useful skill or trade. About a third of young Germans receive a commercial or clerical education and later are trained for careers in mid-levels of business or the civil service. And the other third would attend the highest level, the gymnasium, from ages 10 to 19, a rigorous program with emphasis on the classics, modern languages, mathematics, and natural sciences. I learned I was to attend Nofales Gymnasium in downtown Oberhausen. 
I'd been assigned to the same class as Klaus had attended before he left for his year in St. Louis. So Uli and I arrive in Oberhausen and he prepares to return to his studies at the University of Cologne. I get ready for my challenge at Novalis Gymnasium. I take the city bus downtown. I go in to meet my classmates. There are about 20 of them, a collection of real smart cookies. They've all been trained in English and French, as well as Latin and ancient Greek. But they're really nice kids, some older than I, but all are interested in my story. I start as usual with my request that they speak to me in German. Ja, ja, das ist selbstverständlich. Yes, that's clear. But what about English class? You will speak English with us, huh? And help us with our studies there? Yes, of course, I said. I was thoroughly out of my comfort zone in this school, at this level. I found immediately that it was useless to attend Latin or Greek classes. Their studies of German linguistics and classic literature were well over my head. I could survive in mathematics and music. I sat with my headmaster and main teacher after a week, and they decided on a creative mix of classes to help me along. I'd stay with my original classmates for their subjects where I could compete, but would go to a lower class for more work on German philosophy, and a couple of other subjects. I was allowed to stay with the older students for sport class. I first felt competent in English class. Our teacher said he was delighted to see me. He had a challenge for me if I was willing. Of course, what is it? You are from Californian, California. Yes. From the city of Fresno. Yes. You know the author William Soroyan? Yes, of course. Everyone in Fresno knows William Soroyan. You know his work, My Name is Aram? Of course, everyone in Fresno knows it. Well, I would like your help to teach these stories. The curriculum for several months for our English class. You may or may not have heard of William Soroyan. He was an Armenian-American writer who was born and lived in Fresno. Fresno had a large Armenian immigrant community, and Soroyan was their voice. He had won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama and an Academy Award for Short Story. We can work together to teach Soroyan's work, My Name is Aram. I knew that work, a series of short stories that all had Aram as a hero. The first story takes place when he's nine, and they continue in chronological order until he's a young man and leaves Fresno for the first time. In each story, he interacts with a member of his large family or with other unique people in Fresno. I think that's a great idea, I told him. So we took a 14-week stretch and focused on one of those short stories every week, stories with titles as varied as The Journey to Hanford, and The Three Swimmers and the Grocer from Yale, and The Poor and Burning Arab. I struggled a great deal in communicating in my other studies and spent many hours at my desk with my German dictionary and my Notizbuch, my notebook. 
The other students were gracious with their time and energy, tutoring me on the side so I could hang on to the course material. But it was great to teach and discuss those stories about Aram in my hometown in the 1930s. We had a sport class three days a week. In the first couple of months, we played Fußball, soccer, a sport that most Germans love. Oberhausen even had its own professional football club, Rot-Weiss Oberhausen, which played sometime in the top tier, Bundesliga. I learned quickly that it wasn't just running fast and kicking the ball hard that made a successful player. What I lacked in ball handling skills, I partially made up for an energy, and I gave my teammates some moves to laugh about. When the weather got bad, we moved our sports class to the indoor gym and played what Germans call Handball or Hallenhandball. This handball is nothing to do with what I'd known in the U.S. It is a combination of soccer and basketball. The ball is dribbled once every three steps, passed frequently, and thrown at a soccer-style goal. And they're professional teams. There's a league. Now, this sport was better than football. I could catch the ball, I could run, and I could throw better than most of my teammates. Ah, the playing field was somewhat leveled here. So my classes teaching about Aram continued successfully. My German skills improved slowly, and we played handball several days a week. I was improving. One day I catch the ball. I run down the court. I'm dribbling every third step. I'm approaching the free throw line at full speed with a clear shot at the goal when, bam, someone crashes into me. I can feel his foot hold mine to the ground as I fall. I hear a loud crack. It sounds like a pistol shot, and it feels like a car has crashed into my leg, my left leg above my ankle. I'm on the floor surrounded by a circle of young Germans staring down at me. I know it's not good. Before long, an ambulance arrives, and I'm on my way to a hospital. I can't believe it. It's the same leg I broke when I was nine years old. I was hit by a car, compound fracture, four months laid up in a full leg cast. I'm placed on an exam table in the emergency room. Yes, both the fibula and the tibia broken. Snap clean. I wait for news of surgery. It's no fun. Every slight movement brings great pain. And these Germans are not fond of painkillers. A little aspirin is all I get. Within an hour, my host parents arrive. Fatih talks to the staff. And they tell us there's to be no surgery at this time. I'm in shock. No surgery? What I didn't realize at the time was I was to be placed in the third-class ward of the hospital. This was a room that was not long, not wide, big enough for four beds to be crammed in there, two on each side of the room, foot to head. So I'm left there. Lights go out. The pain is one thing. I'm in one position. My left leg is elevated on a stand and immobilized, and there's a man moaning across from me. Not quiet, timid moans, 
And that means someone is really suffering. Nurses were in and out. The room is not completely dark. And the moans get worse. And then they get quieter. More nurses, a doctor, lots of quiet conversation. Then no more moaning. More quiet conversation. Then a couple of orderlies come in. And the man's bed is wheeled out. My pain is no less. Maybe if I start moaning like that guy, they'd wheel me out to a better room, I think. The guy in the bed behind me says loudly, Gott sei Dank, endlich tot. I know what it means. Thank God, finally dead. Thankfully, my future is not as bleak as that man's. The next morning, Wilhelm arrives early, along with the German director of our ICYE program. They ask me how I'm doing, how the night went. I'm not going to whine at him, but it's hard to put a positive spin on that night. My roommate, the one who spoke in the night, has no hesitation in voicing his own thoughts to them. Meine Herren, wir sind in der Hölle hier. Gentlemen, we are in hell here. Fatih and the ICYE guy say they'll be back. I wait. About an hour and a half later, they return. Ernst, wir haben gute Neuigkeiten. We have good news for you. They explain to me that if one in Germany doesn't have a certain level of insurance or isn't able to pay cash, they will stay in the third class level of care, where I was. But they've managed to find some money in the ICYE coffers. And Fatih will also contribute some out of his own pocket. And the hospital will help some. And they are moving me to a second-class section of the hospital. That means a semi-private room, two beds, better care, better food, certainly more comfortable. Incredible news. So that's it. Up I go to a new room. The place is called Evangelisches Krankenhaus Oberhausen. Protestant Hospital Oberhausen. Oh, a quick side note. In those days, a foreigner taking up residence in Germany had to apply for and be issued an Aufenthaltserlaubnis, a residence permit. I applied for one for educational purposes. It was required to list my religion, either Evangelisch, Protestant, or Katholisch, Catholic. This is important in Germany as about 70% of church revenues come from what is called the Kirchensteuer, the church tax, taken out of income tax. This was truly eye-opening for me. At that time, hospitals in Oberhausen were either Protestant or Catholic. So we had a conference with the doctor. He explained to me, Herr Jonsson, you have broken both your tibia and your fibula bones near your ankle. Although both bones are fractured, they are clean breaks. Both bones are generally lined up correctly. We will have a process called closed reduction. I will physically move the bones into correct position without the need to surgically expose the bone. We will then secure your leg with a plaster cast up to the hip so it remains stable and the bones can heal. 
You must remain immobile. The process may take several months. Are you in agreement? What could I say? I looked at Fatih. He nodded. I said, Ya in Ortnu. I won't describe the experience of the closed reduction procedure, other than to say that I, I was glad when those bones were in proper position. But I didn't go back to the third class ward. I went to a room with two beds, big windows, lots of light. The food was very good. I did drink a lot of peppermint tea, the main beverage of this hospital, peppermint tea. The nurses were called Krankenschwester, sisters to the sick, and we called them Schwester, as if they were nuns. And they wore uniforms, white dresses, clean, starched, ironed, white hats, very formal, like the old days. Schwester Waltraut was a young nurse who made sure I had what I needed. She was there almost every day. I had plenty of time to read and study and reflect. There was no television and no radio. It's funny. I know that they had sent a telegram to my parents in California telling them of the accident and my condition. But I didn't hear anything from them for about 10 days. I got a letter. Hope you're recovering, blah, blah, blah. No phone call, no nothing. Hey, I guess they figured I could handle it. I had visits from Uli every Friday and Saturday. He and Kai would come in with some bottles of beer under their coats. Hospital staff seemed to enjoy me as a patient, and they'd look the other way when these things happened. Every other week, they'd invite one of my fellow American exchange students to visit. Wendell Booker, living in Westerwald, originally from Oakland. Lindsay, who lived in Zones on the Rhine River from Washington, D.C., and others. So my spirits remained high. My classmates from the gymnasium also came by regularly, as well as some of our pals from the trip to Italy. I had it pretty good, but I just wanted up and out. You can understand that. Every week I'd get wheeled off for a new Röntgenaufnahme, the x-ray image of the bones. The first few weeks or so, I had little hope. I could feel the bones move against each other. Then after six weeks or so, I'd wait impatiently for the results. The doctor would go over them with me. It was always, Noch nicht, Herr Jonsson, not yet. Finally, they said, I could get out once a day in a wheelchair for an hour or so. Oh, what freedom! I could roll down the halls to the coffee shop and have a cup of coffee, roll around the place. Then finally, I was allowed out on crutches. If I passed a proficiency test, I'd be released. Oh man, no way was I not going to pass that test. I'd spent two periods of my earlier life on crutches, and I knew how to use those things. So when it came time for my test, I didn't need to take it. Everyone working there had seen me walking around all over the place with those things. So I was released and a week later had the cast cut off. Slowly I regained my mobility. Not running, but I was back at school. Out on Friday and Saturday nights and free. 
I found out that our entire ICYE student group in Germany was going on a field trip to West Berlin. Yes, famous Berlin. I should say that the world was different in those days. Germany had been formally divided at the end of World War II in 1945. There was an American zone, English, French, and Russian zones. Berlin was located in the middle of the Russian zone. It was likewise cut into four sectors. The three western sectors of the country became the Federal Republic of Germany, a democratic, free market system. The Russian sector became known as the Deutsche Demokratische Republik, the German Democratic Republic, the DDR, or the DDR, as I will call it here. It was a satellite state of the Soviet Union, frequently known as East Germany. Now, the economy in West Germany thrived, and the centrally planned, mostly state-owned economy of the East suffered and fell far behind the West. Immigration to the West was a major problem. Many of the immigrants were well-educated, young people. In 1952, the inner border between West and East Germany was blocked by a barbed wire fence. People continued to flee the East from East Berlin to West Berlin, and then on to West Germany. By 1961, approximately three and a half million Germans had fled the East, approximately 20% of the population of the DDR. It was a major brain and talent drain. In order to stop this loss, goaded on by Nikita Khrushchev in August of 1961, Walter Ulbricht, who was a chairman and dictator of the DDR, ordered construction of a barrier separating East Berlin from West Berlin. It made West Berlin into an island. We all knew this when we boarded a bus in Bonn and headed east. It was early December, cloudy, cold, and damp. We reached the East German border at Marienborn. Each of our passports had been collected. Armed members of the East German Grenzpolizei walked up and down the aisle of the bus, staring us each in the face. It didn't take too long before we were released. We didn't stop at all as we crossed through East Germany. We saw no towns, no lights, no traffic other than a few military vehicles. We arrived at the Dreilinden crossing into West Berlin, connected to Allied checkpoint Bravo, This was even more serious. The bus was searched with mirrors underneath and guard dogs, vicious German shepherds, East German Fopos, Volkspolizei, and Grenzpolizei checked each one of us closely against our passports. We could see a few lanes away they were nearly tearing someone's car apart. I'd seen scenes like this in movies, but never in real life. We were quiet. No jokes, no laughter, silence. All you could hear was the questions of the guards. Was wollen Sie in der Westzone tun? What do you want to do in the West Zone? Was machen Sie hier? What are you doing here? It seemed to take forever. The bus door shut and we drove away. 
The bus erupted in cheers and yells. We made it. We made it. We got through. Oh, West Berlin was a great place. We walked through the exciting Kurfürstendamm, nightclubs, high-end stores, restaurants. We visited the Kaiser Wilhelm Gedächtniskirche. It was a badly damaged church in the raids of 1943. The surviving tower of the church was left as a memorial. We went to a nightclub where each table had a phone. You could sit and drink beer, wine, whatever you wanted, call any other table to invite someone to dance or to a drink or just to say hello. Very exciting. We didn't have one of those in Fresno. One day we made a visit to the Olympic Stadium built by Hitler in 1936 to host the Olympics as a major propaganda tool. I knew in detail how Jesse Owens had won four gold medals and embarrassed the Nazi propaganda machine. I stood on the track and looked around. A hundred thousand seats. I could see above me where Hitler and Hermann Göring and others stood to watch the games. We walked along the famous wall, past the crosses, place where people had died trying to escape. Names and dates, or the word unknown and a date. We climbed observation towers to look out into no man's land. A minefield, things they call Czech hedgehogs, the guard towers, the vehicle trench, the German shepherd guard dogs, the watchtowers, the bunkers, the guards with machine guns, with firm orders of shoot to kill. It was almost too much to grasp. We noticed as we walked through some dark neighborhoods, such as the Kreuzberg, desolated and surrounded on three sides by the wall, that there were still many unrepaired bullet holes in the houses from the war. The most emotional day was when we crossed over into East Berlin. My best pals and I spent the day together. We went early to Checkpoint Charlie. I had known it from movies and thrillers, but here it was. There was a famous sign, You are leaving the American sector, also written in Russian, French, and German. We easily passed through the American Checkpoint then the DDR border guards. I presented my passport and told them I was visiting for the day. I was forced to exchange 10 vest marks for 10 east marks. This was really highway robbery because a real exchange, the black market, was about 10 east marks for one west mark. They warned me that it was a crime to leave the DDR with any Osmark cash. We walked down the famous Karl Marx Allee, the pride and joy of the DDR. We went into the famous Café Sibyl for a coffee. It was dreadful, weak and cool. We went into the famous bookstore, the Karl Marx Buchhandlung. I went in and found a copy of Latino Americana Tagebuch, oder Motorreise 1951-52 by Ernesto Che Guevara. 
his The Motorcycle Diaries. The economy in the DDR was stronger than other East Bloc countries, but lagged far behind the West. Away from the Kalmaksalay, it was drab and dark. Unrepaired bullet holes in many buildings and walls, the few buildings that remained after the war. Berlin has a comprehensive subway system. It is made up of the S-Bahn, which was begun in the 1920s, above and below ground, and the U-Bahn. We took the S-Bahn to Treptower Park, the construction of the wall in 1961 cut these lines dramatically. Some lines of West Berlin still passed through stations in the east, which were closed and heavily guarded. They were called ghost stations. You looked out the windows of the car as it rolled through, never stopping at a dead station, with East German police patrolling it with their submachine guns. A really creepy sight. Here we were on the S-Bahn in East Berlin. We got out at Treptower Park, one of three Soviet war memorials in Berlin. It is on a huge site built to honor the 80,000 Soviet troops who were killed in the two months of fighting to take Berlin. 7,000 of them are buried here. The central piece is a 12-meter tall statue of a Soviet soldier with a sword holding a German child standing over a broken swastika. It's guarded round the clock with an honor guard of Russian soldiers. We watched the changing of the guard silently and were amazed to see the soldiers slowly goose-stepping out and back. On our way back to Checkpoint Charlie, through some dark and nearly deserted street, our pal Wendell Booker, known as Winky, said he wanted to show us something he'd learned, something really cool that his classmates had taught him. We were on a long spaziergang, a hike in the forest, and we did this. He showed us. We marched along, in step, calling out the cadence. Eins, zwei, drei, vier, fünf, sechs, sieben, acht, neun, zehn, ein Hut, ein Stock, ein Regenschirm und vorwärts, rückwärts, seitwärts, ran und eins, zwei. After Regenschirm, we'd all stop and with vorwärts, leg forward, sideways, back and in. And off we'd go again. Eins, zwei. There were eight of us, goose-stepping around and calling out loudly in the middle of this communist police state. What were we thinking? I don't know. Bunch of young kids, I guess. That bus ride back from Berlin seemed more subdued. West Berlin was so vibrant, alive, colorfully lit and exciting. The East was dingy, dark, quiet, with a sense of danger and foreboding. It was on all of our minds. We were tense all the way through East Germany and very happy to clear the East German checkpoint and enter the West again. I want to thank Anashira for sponsoring this podcast. I can't believe that we skipped past Valentine's Day 
without my making a pitch for you to buy some bars of my very special handmade goat milk soap for your Valentine. Hey, you still can. You know, those Godiva chocolates are long gone, eaten and forgotten. Get your Valentine's attention back with a gift of my very unique Paris night soap. In fact, I'm going to put a bar in our shower as soon as I finish recording this. Join me in two weeks as I return to Oberhausen and go back to school and get ready for Christmas in my next episode of Stories from Anashiro.